0: This week, why is it the coolest year for the rest of your life? But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Important Not Important. It's science for people who give a shit. Hit subscribe right now to get this essay and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. Uh, You can find the email version or the web version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or in your show notes. That's also where you can become a member, support our work, get exclusive weekly content and tools, and connect with other members to learn more and faster, and feel supported in your journey as a shit-giver. And now, here's today's big question. Why is it the coolest year for the rest of your life? You've read the headlines, maybe even normalized them. It's the hottest year on record. It was the hottest September on record, after the hottest summer on record— This is so fun. Some of the reasons for these records are obvious, um, some less so, and some increasingly less so. So here's some questions you're probably asking. Are things heating up a bit faster than we thought? Yes. Could it be worse? Yes. Will it get worse? Unfortunately, also yes. Is it up to us how much worse? Also, yes. Do we have the tech we need to reduce emissions to real zero? Yes. Are we still working through the policy issues regarding how to pay for real zero, how to build it, and then how to connect it all together? Double yes. Are vested interests like wealthy white people standing in the way of, say, wind farms? This will surprise you, but yes. Are major banks investing more than they ever have in fossil fuel infrastructure? Yes, goddammit. Are there a complex variety of systems impacted every day by global heating, from farming to migration to public health? Yes. Does every single tenth of a degree matter? Does every single ton of emissions, carbon or methane or otherwise, matter? Also, also yes. Like I said up top, it's always helpful— For those of us who are alarmed 24-7 and recently on Prozac to deal with it. For those of us who've become jaded towards it and for new readers alike to revisit the why behind some of the big headlines. So that's what I'm going to do today. There's nothing really groundbreaking here, folks. Just a state of the union as we barrel into fall, which, of course, is shorter than it used to be. So here are some of the reasons why this year has been so damn hot. So, to be frank, it's mostly because we're still pumping out carbon and methane emissions, um, among some others. That's not great. But it's also not surprising. Because what we've built a huge amount of clean energy, electric vehicles, and electrified appliances in just the past few years, really, it's astounding, we have so much left to build. And we have to build most of it this decade, to really hold off the bad stuff. So the reasons, of course, are myriad and listed below. Let's do this. The point is, we're still broadly reliant on fossil fuels to provide power, which sucks. 2.5 trillion tons of CO2 later, we're still making it every day hotter. Now, on October 3rd, uh, Robinson Meyer at Heatmap asked Zeke Housefather, uh, who's a climate research lead at Stripe and an IPPC author, IPCC author, and he's the co-author of a great newsletter called The Climate Brink, he asked him, why has it been so damn hot? And um, I've got part of their conversation below here for additional context, because they know what they're talking about. Uh, Robinson asked, why has this year in particular been so hot? And Zeke said... Part of the reason that these summer charts look so crazy is that the most recent big El Nino events that we've had have primarily boosted winter temperatures. 1998 and 2016 both had really high December, January, and February temperatures. And we're probably on track for that as well this year. El Nino is still growing in 2023. But this year, he said, we saw a very dramatic shift from a moderate La Nina, a very unusually long triple-dip moderate La Nina that lasted from late 2020 to the start of this year, to strong El Nino conditions over the course of just a few months. And so it's not just the transition from neutral to La Nina that affects temperatures, it's the swap from La Nina to El Nino. And that's been part of the story this year, and one of the reasons why you've seen such high temperatures this summer. He continued, there's a bunch of other contributing factors that were still in the early stages of precisely quantifying. And I always appreciate his candor here. He said those include an uptick in the solar cycle that happens every 11 years. That has a small effect, maybe 0.05 degrees Celsius. There's the phase-out of sulfite shipping fuels by 2020, which shouldn't suddenly affect the summer of this year, but which certainly have contributed to more recent warming. Uh, that so that was inadvertent geoengineering we were doing. And he said, and that's on top of the broad decline in forcing from aerosols, aerosols and sulfur dioxide in particular that's fallen about 30% since the year 2000. And then there's a bit of a wild card with this Tonga volcano that erupted last year that put a huge amount of water vapor into the atmosphere. Again, he said, most of the early modeling of that shows somewhere in the range of an increase of 0.05 to 0.08 Celsius, a boost to warming, but not the main cause. He finished by saying, I think if you combine the rapid switch from La Nina to El Niño and all of these smaller contributors on top of the 1.3 degrees Celsius or so of human-driven warming that we've had to date, you can get temperatures this extreme. So, the human-driven warming that we've had to date. Let's talk about some of the other reasons why it's still getting hotter. Let's start with growth. Global North and West countries are decarbonizing, slowly but surely, but the Global South is just coming online and fast. I wrote about this in Do You Really Want a Revolution? We'll link to that in the show notes. Further, rich countries aren't doing a lot to help Global South countries uh, do that in a clean way, Which is pretty self-defeating because, as we know, climate change doesn't know any borders, but it does affect certain populations first. Africa and India's populations are growing faster than you can possibly imagine, and they need to build infrastructure just as fast as we did, if not much faster. Aluminum and steel for infrastructure are in high demand, and processing both currently produces huge emissions. That's a hard one. So coal remains the most viable option a lot of the time. And that's bad. El Nino. So this was my original commentary on El Nino. The relative surge of warm surface water along the equator in the Pacific, uh, which is here. Again, what we know is it's real, it's weird, and it may get much stronger this year. Or not. We're not really sure. And I'm not messing with you. David DeWitt, who's the director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center was asked if this winter will be more extreme, and he said, my answer would be, maybe. Great. So, look, either way, regional weather will probably continue to be more extreme and quite a bit different from the last, uh, I mean, truly almost near decade of the La Nina years, the on and off there. Think more extreme rainfall in California, where, as we know now, 90% of homeowners don't have flood insurance, and East Africa, or not. Drought and wildfires in Australia and Indonesia Or not. Or more snow on the east coast. Or not. Let's talk about deforestation. It continues worldwide, reducing the volume and effectiveness of our second most valuable carbon sink. Less carbon into forests, more carbon into the air, and it just keeps getting hotter. From our world and data, net forest loss is not the same as deforestation. It measures deforestation plus any gains in forest over a given period. Over the decade since 2010, the net loss in forests globally was 4.7 million hectares per year. However, deforestation rates were much significantly higher. The UN FAO estimate that 10 million hectares of forest were cut down each year. Here's some good news. Satellites have revolutionized how we literally see forests. Deforestation is actually slowing in Brazil, and of course now there's a Winnie the Pooh book here to tell us how much we've actually fucked up. So anyways, let's talk about the oceans. Earth's oceans have had it up to here with this shit. Quite literally, they have absorbed the vast majority of our CO2, actually, and they're heating fast now because of it and seemingly can't take any more carbon. The Atlantic was terrifyingly hot at times this summer, just cooking corals and other food ecosystems. And again, like the forests, less carbon absorbed into the ocean means more going into the atmosphere, which means it's going to keep getting hotter on land. Let's talk about methane. Again, great news. We have the technology now to more aggressively identify, hunt down uh, methane leaks. Bad news. By way of that, there are apparently a mind-boggling volume of methane leaks, said one scientist. So a reminder, or if you're new here or been greenwashed by natural gas, methane has about 80 times the warming power of CO2 over the first couple decades after it gets into the atmosphere. Great news. It dissipates much faster than carbon. And also, we could just stop leaking it. That's a choice we can make. Let's talk about meat, everyone's favorite subject. Meat continues to be a nightmare on all fronts it is the opposite of a co-benefit. From deforestation, to land use, to water use, to monocrops, to cow methane, it is a threat multiplier. Meat-forward businesses like McDonald's have little incentive to pivot from incredibly popular business models to something that's not killing everyone in six different ways. And You know, I haven't spent a ton of time here focusing specifically on animal rights, though I do fundamentally believe in them, and you can read or listen more about my thoughts and what I wrote, why I don't eat animals. But in the newsletter for this one, I shared a chart from, again, from Our World and Data that shows how every day, every day, 900,000 cows, 1.4 million goats, 1.7 million sheep, 3.8 million pigs. 11.8 million ducks, 202 million chickens, and hundreds of millions of fish are slaughtered every day. Look, we got a lot of people to feed, but this can't be the way. It is a threat multiplier. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or INI, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. So, we're trying to come back to the guy who did this, right? We're all trying to find the guy who did this, which brings us back to business in general, which has spent the past five years promoting net zero plans while being almost entirely reliant on carbon offsets, which, being as generous as I possibly can here, are not real. And real talk, they have intentionally throttled real decarbonization efforts massively. I cannot possibly describe to you how angry carbon offsets make me. They are a crime. They have slowed efforts to reach real zero in every conceivable way, again, intentionally. And instead of just being a waste of money and maybe an enormous bubble, they are probably also genuinely making the problem worse. And countries aren't doing enough here either. They're using the same. Keep in mind, most companies, companies don't simply have the transmission lines and batteries necessary to operate entirely on clean energy yet, of course. And especially when it's dark out and or the wind isn't blowing, it's still been eight years since Paris and most countries are well behind where they plan to be. Now, great news, again, really, it could be worse. Truly, we'll get to reasons why it's not worse in a moment, but let's hang out with the data for a moment. Here's the math, global averages. In this case, of surface temperatures are important, especially over time but they're misleading if you don't dive any deeper, or I guess more widely, because of course some places are heating much faster than others, and temperature doesn't say much about impact. But let's address global averages anyways, by way, again, of Zeke Housefather. Now, in Zeke's latest issue, he describes through a variety of charts and scientific data how abnormally hot it has been this year. You should absolutely check out the post which is in your show notes, to see the charts, because I can't describe them well enough here other to say it's been off the charts more than it's ever been. What we're worried about is trends, of course, not a single month or year, but we've still never seen aberrations like this. So not ideal. But getting specific, again, because numbers are one thing, impacts are another. In Antarctica, some context, I'm blowing my way through Patrick O'Brien's 20 novels, where the main characters frequently find themselves sailing through frigid, uncharted waters north of Antarctica, terrified of icebergs the size of cathedrals, as they say. Which is one very small reason why it's so crushing to read about sea ice levels in Antarctica, which are at an all-time low, not too far after those novels took place and it's probably because, quote, it's seen record temperature increases of 3.2 degrees Celsius, or 37.76 Fahrenheit since the 1950s, over three times more than the global average. Let's talk about other bread baskets uh, and and hotspots. So I've spent the past few years leveling up in a million disciplines at once. (laughs) Some have gone better than others and some educational resources have actually really come out of nowhere. Like Tradle, which started after Wordle, where you guess which country exports the displayed allocation of products. It is hard, but you get better at it. It's a delightful daily challenge, like Wordle or all those other ones. But it's also not— it's impossible to not learn a tremendous amount about global trade along the way, in in particular, food. So, in one of last week's games— The country's export total was, uh, the unnamed country's export total was $10.8 billion. And the largest export was soybeans at 27.8%. Soybean meal and soybean oil made up another 13.6% of the total among other foods. So it's a lot. So my first thought is broader context, $10.1 billion in exports is not a very big total. So the potential countries was narrowed down quite a bit. Now all the soy products are interesting, and I have a pretty good idea where they come from. But some other exports were a bigger clue. Bovine meat. So I narrowed it down further to somewhere in South America. My first guess was Uruguay, which was incorrect. My second was Paraguay, where I nailed it. Here does this, how does this tie into today's essay? Well, there's bad news for the upcoming soybean crop. Winter just ended in South America, and it was 110 degrees. Now, exports matter for a variety of reasons, including the income derived from selling them, and for the buyer, you know, they get food they might not otherwise choose to or be able to grow. And as we not-so-gently unwind a few decades of globalization, more countries are keeping more domestically produced food at home, all in the name of food security, from war, El Nino, and climate impacts. Which is a real pros and cons situation if your particular domestic production gets scorched or flooded or both, or food you previously imported becomes much more expensive very quickly. Let's discuss this around the world briefly. Um, In East Africa, it means drought and famine and war across Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. In West Africa, Lagos and hundreds of all their smaller cities are growing as sea level rise does the same there there's still hell of a lot of rural Nigeria out there, and flooding is an enormous risk. In North India, drought has threatened not only crops, but also, like in the U.S. West, hydropower, forcing more fossil fuel use. In Mexico, speaking of exports, Mexican-produced beer, which is 30% of the world's supply, is down because of drought, and cartels are controlling the remaining water supply. In Europe, on the whole, far wealthier than every other country above, and adding heat pumps like crazy, but still poorly prepared for the heat from a lack of air conditioning in apartments to a reliance on rivers for shipping, and of course, still on Russian gas partly. In China, despite their absolute monopoly on the precious metals and manufacturing needed to build clean energy, China's relative lack of arable land and whiplash recently between heat waves and floods is actually making food security a real risk. Let's talk about shipping briefly. We've alluded to a little bit talking about rivers. For centuries, we built cities along major freshwater rivers because, as any Civ 6 rookie can tell you, it's step one for a functioning society of humans who can't survive without water. But these thoroughfares also allowed us to ship a variety of goods back and forth, spurring trade and new economies of scale and, uh, Mark Twain. But now those same routes are being challenged, as everywhere from the mighty Mississippi to the Rhine and even the incredibly vital Panama Canal are frequently drying up. Let's talk about storms and heat domes. Um, in a pretty quick turnaround, we're now able to attribute certain, certain extreme weather to climate change, like hurricanes from Florida to Libya and heat domes from Texas to, again, China. Now, of course, yes, there's always been storms and wildfires, and heat domes, but nothing like these, nor as often. Right, now, are you ready? Because I'm going to tell you about why it's not worse, and this is great news, and we can build on this. We've built so much more clean energy and clean transportation, mostly two-wheelers, in Asia, than anyone thought we would at this point, more or less decoupling economic growth from emissions, which was one very obnoxious argument I'm so glad we're done with. Heat pumps are now being installed more than gas furnaces, and 25 U.S. states want to quadruple the pace. But it's mostly not worse because we spent the last 10-plus years scaling solar, and to an extent, wind, and reducing the cost of solar and batteries 90% or more, however much we're at the moment struggling with a glut of parts and realignment of the world order around required resources and production. We've already set so many of the pieces in place, truthfully. We have virtually all of the technology we need to get to real zero. Full decarbonization. We just, just, have to do the work. We must go faster. Mitigation and adaptation means eliminating the few trillion dollars in fossil fuel subsidies and spending about $4.5 trillion annually on climate spending. It means drastically reducing meat consumption and food waste banning carbon offsets and deforestation, decarbonizing CO2 and methane to real zero, and minimizing as much suffering for humans and ecosystems as we can along the way. You know, in the words of our friends at Project Drawdown, we have to hit the emergency brakes now. This all compounds either way. It means focusing the public less on temperatures and emissions and more on pollution and impact, something they can actually relate to. That they can taste and breathe, and that remains a tangible example of the power structures just still dedicated to killing them. It means land back and water rights returned to indigenous peoples. It means the US building an interconnected grid like Europe's, one that's robust and two-way, and packed with microgrids and long-duration batteries. It means supporting Brazil's efforts to stop deforestation at all costs, It means taking over utilities if we have to, but definitely making sure they can't use your fees for lobbying against clean energy, which, by the way, is fucking insane. We'll get back to that in a second. It means figuring out how the hell we tap into the new world's biggest lithium deposit without trashing the environment around it. It means doing all of this while protecting the people most exposed to the heat—farm workers, the poor, redline city dwellers, and kids in classrooms— Along the way, for a while, it's going to keep getting hotter. But at some point, when we do enough, that'll stop. And maybe someday after that, we can even start to bring it back down again. Here's your relevant action steps. Number one, donate to Climate Crew to help build resilience hubs and prepare your community for extreme heat. Number two, volunteer to build a resilience hub in your community so your community can better respond to extreme heat. Number three, get educated about community planning for extreme heat by reading the piece in your show notes in the newsletter from Vox. Number four, be heard about the health and safety of workers and urge your representatives to support the Asuncion Valdivia Heat Illness, Injury, and Fatality Prevention Act. Invest in deforestation-free funds so your money isn't contributing to the planet getting hotter. That's it for this week. If you've got feedback, questions, opinions, I want to hear them. Email me at questions at importantnotimportant.com and hit subscribe to get next week's issue straight to your feed. To go deeper, of course, visit importantnotimportant.com. Thanks for being a part of our community, and thanks for giving a shit. Have a great weekend.